Well, this is the Sunday you've all been waiting for. The last message in Romans. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe you just want to keep going. I don't know. But uh, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 16 this morning. Romans chapter 16. And, um, you know, as we get to that chapter, it's... Uh, And looked at one commentator, Nigren. Nigren spent all of a page and a half on the whole chapter. He basically said, this is say hi to a lot of folks. And that was almost all he had to say about it. And what do we do when we get to those long lists of names in the Bible, typically? Skip. (laughs) Fast forward. You know, you hit those in the Old Testament Leviticus, so and so we got 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 and it's like, man, do I need a cup of coffee? Skip, and you just move on to the meatier stuff, you know. And so I was asking myself the question, okay, why would Paul name this many people? There's 33 people listed by name in this chapter, 26 of whom are in the city of Rome. The other seven are with him in Corinth. To give you the setting and remind you, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem to deliver the offering of the Gentile churches throughout Asia uh, as a help to the the poverty that is going on among the believers in Jerusalem. And so he's carrying this offering himself. He wanted to personally deliver it. And so he has his group with him that are there in Corinth. They're writing this letter to Rome because his intention is to deliver the offering to the Jerusalem church leadership and immediately to sail to Rome. That's his goal. And he's hoping to be in Rome in a relatively short period of time, relative in those days, meaning a couple of months. He's hoping to be in Rome and uh, personally uh, building a base to launch the mission into Spain. We talked about that last week. And so he's at the end of his letter, and he knows a lot of people in Rome. Now, the reason that he does... Uh, among others, is that Claudius, you may recall, one of the emperors, cast all the Jews out of Rome. It was called the Diaspora, and he he ran all the Jews out of Rome, and they scattered all over uh, the northern Mediterranean, Palestine area, whatever. And so, all along Paul's journeys, he encountered Jews who had really belonged to Rome. Well, Claudius' edict has expired, and over the last couple of years, the Jews have been returning to Rome, back to their home area, and so they are beginning to integrate with the church there. Some of them had been converted while they were in transition out in the dispersion. And now they're going back to Rome to integrate with the church there and to begin to grow as believers in the church at Rome. And so Paul has made the acquaintance of many Roman Jewish believers. And so he has some knowledge of this church. 
at least some of the people in it. And he wants to call attention to certain individuals who have been significant in the work and to kind of lay the groundwork for his coming there in a little while himself and moving on to Spain. And so I asked myself the question, what is it that causes people to stand out in the mind of the Apostle Paul as being Christians worthy of note? Would your name be in his list today if he were writing a letter to the church at McHenry and saying, by the way, uh, greet Tammy, my sister in the Lord, you know, uh, greet Ken and uh, his family and uh, greet Ryan and the church that meets in his house, the small group. I mean, who would he talk about? Where would you fit in the list? And so I ask myself two questions. What have these people done in the power of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the kingdom that has caused them to stand out? What have they done? And the second question I ask is, who are they? What is their character, their, their social status, their background, what, who are they, what is their biography, who is their persona. And so I want to try to answer those two questions this morning. Follow with me as I read these first 16 verses, and then we'll talk about the things that stand out about them. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is in Cancrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Eponidas, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, Maria, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved who has worked in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philodulus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, some people get all excited about that last verse, and it's been comical to see Westerners try to uh, incorporate this holy kiss greeting in church life. 
We don't do that naturally, but Mideasterners do. Uh, and many cultures, when they come to one another, um, uh, Italians and other Mediterranean peoples, you know, they grab each other by the shoulders and they kiss each other on either side of the face up near the ear. And, and they, that's what Paul's talking about. That's that, and then that good bear hug that goes with it. And that's the, the warm Christian greeting that he's talking about. Now, if you were born and raised in the United States, that may be a little awkward for you. But uh, we have our similar kinds of customs. You know, a good firm handshake and a clasp on the shoulder. But it's, it's not inappropriate to give each other a hug in the Lord. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, at uh, one of the special services one year at Willow Creek, and um, I, uh, I thought it was kind of amusing the way Bill Hybels uh, suggested. It was a Christmas Eve, one of their Christmas Eve uh, programs. And, and he says... Um, I just want you to know this is a good time to just turn around and greet one another. Uh, he says, only touch the ones that are family that you know. I don't want to freak anybody out here tonight. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, I can, I can see where he's coming from. You know, you didn't want meltdown and panic on the floor. But um, it's, it's not inappropriate as we grow in love and depth with one another to greet one another with that hug, that embrace, that good handshake, that, that significance that says, your family, your family, boy am I glad to see you and I really love you. In fact, one of the things that, you know, Paul, I don't know what kind of image you form of Paul, the, the Corinthians says, oh, he's harsh in his letters, but when he's here, he's kind of a Casper milk toast. I mean, he just, he doesn't have any real gumption when he's in present with us, but boy, he can sure write hard, you know, and, and I imagine him being a short fellow, balding. Um, I see him as a type A personality, a little bit driven, and, uh, you know, he's single-minded, he knows what he's after. And, uh, you know, I think there's evidence of that in Scripture. As God mellows him and sanctifies him and he starts looking more and more like Jesus, I think in his early days you see that fiery guy, you know, that was ready to take on the world. In fact, he and Barnabas had such an argument in the book of Acts they couldn't even go on together. But later on, Paul was the one that wrote the phrase, love is not angered. And, uh, you know, love keeps no record of a wrong suffered. I think he grew a little bit. He wrote that after the argument, by the way. And uh, you see how Paul is growing and maturing. And, and so it's interesting that in this passage, one of the phrases he uses four times of these people is beloved or beloved. And he calls them my beloved. Four times he refers to people in this passage as my beloved. I think that speaks to us of the tender love that occurs in the body of Christ. And you know, as time goes along and we share life together in a, in a church family, we ought to develop those bonds of love that really run deep. And if you're natural family are not believers, 
you may even find that as much as you love them in the flesh, you feel a closer unity and affinity toward your church family who know the Lord. Because you have more in common. You have more, you share more. And the intimacy that should develop with that is part of what Paul, stands out to Paul with certain people whom he reaches out by his words and embraces and says, you are my beloved. And he says this of both men and women. He talks about a sisterly, brotherly community where Jesus, our elder brother, and God, our Father over all, brings us into this family mediated by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a beautiful image that he gives? But one of the first things that he comes with out of the gate is the word worker. One of the things that makes these people stand out is they are workers. He uses the phrase worker six times. Twice he calls them hard workers, or who have worked hard. Incidentally, he only uses that with reference to two women. The others have just worked. (laughs) But they're workers. And the word worker that he uses in that context means to toil and to labor with intensity, to become weary with working. They're hard workers. And three times he calls them fellow workers, yoke fellows, people that are in it together with me. He speaks of those who have shared his work. Fellow workers. You know, when Jesus Christ called his first disciples, he did not call them to a philosophy. He didn't call them to a new way of thinking. He said, for example, to Peter and James and John and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me is an active verb. Come after me and I have a new occupation for you. I have a new vocation. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Being a worker in the kingdom is a natural outflow of following Jesus Christ. Some of the times I think we have a tendency to think that the Christian way of thinking is what comes with the program and that working in the kingdom is an optional endeavor. It's kind of like, okay, if I want to do a little extra. But the Bible is pretty clear Jesus himself, work for the night is coming when man's work is done. That we have a responsibility to be workers in the kingdom. And those who stand out as workers, Paul calls attention to in these verses. They are workers who stand out among us. They have worked hard. They've worked hard for the, for the Romans. They have worked hard in the church. They have toiled in the kingdom. They're worthy of recognition. The other person that he singles out is Phoebe in the first few verses, and he calls her a helper. Actually, the word helper here is not the best translation, because the Greek word is paternos or patron. 
Phoebe is a patron. What does that mean? It literally means that she is a person of wealth who has invested her considerable wealth and social status in kingdom blessing and ministry. We find some very interesting things about Phoebe. I'm going to talk more about her toward the end. But um, she apparently was the only one in the Corinthian area that Paul allowed to contribute to his work. He wanted to remain distant from obligation to the Corinthian church, and so he made tents there. But he apparently received support from Phoebe because she did not have an agenda. She had no strings attached to her giving. But she was one who was willing to help the work with her substance. And she was apparently a woman of substance and of social uh, stature. And so she contributed and she was called a helper in the work. She contributed in other ways too that we'll see later. We find that Prisca and Aquila, her fellow workers in Christ, risked their lives at some point. For the Apostle Paul. They went out on a limb. They put their lives at jeopardy in their ministry to him. Another group, Andronicus and Junia, were fellow prisoners with Paul. Now this may mean that they also had been imprisoned for their preaching and teaching, or it may mean that they had been imprisoned with Paul at the same time. But they had suffered imprisonment for the gospel. I find it interesting that a, there are approximately three to five house churches mentioned in this list of people. When the church at Rome gathered, it did not gather in a cathedral like we are doing. And I'm not sure we'd call this a cathedral, but um, we did, they didn't gather all in one place as we are. They gathered in house churches throughout the city. For one thing, it was safer that way. It avoided some of the persecution problems. I mean, if there's only one church in Rome and they're all in this big, ornate building, how do you know where to find them? If you're, you know, the Roman government, you, you look for them on Sunday when they're all in this big building. But they met in house churches all over the city. And so we find Paul saying, for example, um, in verse uh, 4, uh Prisca and Aquila risk their lives for me. Greet the church, verse 5, that is in their house. And then we find the household of Aristobulus, verse um, 10. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet those of the household of Narcissus. Greet those uh, of, in verse 14, Asyncritus, Phlegon. I'm trying to do this without my glasses. Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philodulus and Julia, Narius and his sister in Olympus, and the saints who are with them. And then he talks about another brother where the church is meeting in his house. It's interesting that in the passage, apparently, the church is meeting in different homes under the hosting or the leadership of other people of the church. And so I was serious when I said it might be give my greeting to Ryan in the church that meets in, in his house. And, uh, you know, give my greeting to uh, Carrie in the church that meets in his house. Um, let them know that I'm thinking about them. 
Here apparently were, were the congregation scattered throughout the city in house churches. You say, how big could those have gotten? Well, some of them could have been quite large. Have any of you been to the Cuneo Museum over by uh, Vernon Hills Mall on Milwaukee Road? Who's been there? Oh, some of you need a field trip. Okay, you should go do the Cuneo Museum sometime. And the reason for no, for no other reason is the architecture, because it has some semblance to ancient Rome. They have a, a courtyard in the middle of the house. They have a two-story home in a square, more or less, and in the middle, and they have like open walkways. You know how like the, the motels used to be when you'd go to Howard Johnson's and you'd be outside, but you'd... You know, your rooms would open off on the open walkway. Well, in this house, the room's open to the open walkway, but it looks down into the courtyard in the middle of the house. And um, the guy, I guess, was buddies with Tom Edison back in the day and uh, got some of the latest electrical inventions like an elevator or something else. And he had these uh, glass dome in the in the open area in the courtyard that the, the glass could move back out of the way and it would be open to the air. And so on a beautiful day, you could open up the whole inside of the house. And there are fountains and statuary and whatever down there. And it, when I saw it, it reminded me of the descriptions I'd read of some of the homes that have been discovered archaeologically in Rome. And some wealthy people would have courtyards that could hold a hundred people. And, and some of them were recognized to have been associated with the early church. So you would have believers perhaps meeting in a household that had a room as big as this one. And the house would be kind of around it, around the courtyard, and you could come in and have the meeting. You could have a hundred or more people meeting in your home. Paul says those people are worthy of note. You who host small groups, you know that. Uh, People show up at your house once a week, and if nothing else, you're forced to clean at least once a week. And you have some responsibility that goes with that. And so, uh, Paul says, I want to greet those people and call attention to those. Another brother is called approved in Christ. These are the things that stand out to Paul. People who work hard in the kingdom. People who are helpers in the work, financially and other ways. People who uh, are willing to suffer for their faith in Jesus Christ and put it all on the line if that's what it takes. People that have become dear to him that he calls beloved, my beloved in the Lord. These are the people who stand out to Paul. Now, what kind of people are they? Well, as I looked at the list again, I discovered that we have church leaders here. There's at least one deacon. There are at least two apostles, maybe several more. Um... I'm assuming by inference there are elders because of the presence of house churches. There are those who are providing spiritual leadership and shepherding. Some of these people are slaves. In fact, one of them is a slave in Caesar's house. Can you see how Jesus Christ has permeated the Roman community and brings the light of Christ? Listen, friends. There's no one of you here this morning that is not important. There's no one of you here that is insignificant. 
Here is a slave in this list who is named, and we know by extra-biblical literature as well, that he worked in the household of Caesar, in the emperor's palace, serving the royal family. And here is a person who brings the light and life of Jesus Christ into the very home of the emperor. Now, I don't know if he had the gift of teaching. I don't know if he was a powerful preacher. I don't know if he was a great prophet. I don't know what his role in the church was. He was not a great business tycoon because he was a slave. He didn't have lots of money because he was a slave. But he was a person in the household of the emperor who bore the light of Jesus Christ in the most strategic heart of the empire. And the question that was asked of Esther by her uncle Mordecai many years ago applies. How do you know but that Christ has appointed you for just such a time as this? Where are you? What are you doing? You bear the light of Jesus Christ in that place. And you may be the only light. And think of your strategic significance. You may be the only light people have. Some of them were freedmen. They had been slaves, but they were freed. And they would be kind of like our middle, middle, lower middle class. I realize <laughs> there's a lot, of go, a lot of middles going on in there, but our middle class has about three tiers. You've got lower middle, middle middle, and upper middle, and then you've got upper and upper upper and lower and way, really way down. But the middle class, they're the people, you know, they have good jobs, they have a trade, maybe they own a small business, they're kind of on their own. They're, they're providing a living for their family, maybe a couple of others because of the business they own. Uh, they're not wealthy people, but they're, they're the kind of the heart and soul of the society in many ways. And a number of the names in this list, because of the way people receive their surnames and whatever, and the studies that have been done, they would have been freedmen or freedwomen. They would have been people who had the opportunity uh, to, to permeate society with their business, with their gifts, with their wares. Some of them had suffered because of being ostracized as Christian business people, just like the letter to Hebrews suggests a little later on. But they were those who bore the light of Christ in that arena. And some of them were noblemen and noblewomen and civic leaders. Paul in Corinth writing talks about uh, the fellow um, uh, Erastus who is the city treasurer at Corinth. See, you know, it's okay to have the mayor in your church. It's okay to have the president of the chamber of commerce. It's okay to have the chief of police. These people, when they know Jesus Christ and they're part of the believing community, bear the light of Christ in strategic ways. 
So can you see how it is that God can use a group of people like this from the lowliest in economic terms, the slaves to the freed people to the noble people, that God has called people from all walks of life to bring the light of Christ throughout the society, that His presence might be known. And you know, people who have status are not to be scorned by the church. Now, one of the things Paul reminds us of in Corinthians is sometimes people with status, you know how not many wise, not many noble, not many, you know, were called because they tend to be so arrogant that they're, they're, they're hard to get through to. But don't stereotype all people with status as being arrogant and uppity. Because when Jesus Christ touches their life in a profound way, and they become humbled, truly humbled in the fullness of God's Spirit, their position and their resources and their influence, then under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, can be used effectively in advancing the kingdom. God uses such people. The Apostle Paul was highly educated, a well-trained rabbi on his way to becoming the leader of the rabbinic schools of Israel. And God got a hold of him and called him to be an ambassador, an apostle to the Gentiles. Do not disparage education in and of itself. It's, it's under the authority of the Holy Spirit that it can be used. Outside of that, it produces arrogance and self-reliance. But submitted to God in humility, it can become a powerful force. And some of these people had local power and significance. One of the things that I find fascinating in the list is that one-third of the people mentioned were women. Women who had served ably and powerfully in the ministry, both in Rome and in Corinth. Um, lest you have in your mind a concept of what it was, you know, of, of the role of women in the first century, uh, I want to read you an excerpt um, from uh, one of the commentaries that I was studying in preparation for this, if I can find it. Always helps if you, I have about 15 markings here, and it always helps if you really mark the one you want first. Okay, here we go. Marriage laws and other laws had become less severe in their restriction of women during the empire, though Augustus did try to provide incentives for patrician women to marry, have a certain number of children, assume traditional roles in the family. But Augustus' laws show that many women were seeking other avenues of self-expression as businesswomen in religious cults in various other ways. Furthermore, even among the poorer families, including some financially strapped patrician families, daughters did go to school, even though tutors were available only for those who could afford them. Within Rome, within the home, Roman women and matrons in particular had considerable status and power. They were, generally speaking, not housewives in the normal sense of the term, 
though they bore a major responsibility for the home, they would assign uh, menial tasks to servants. They would regularly go to markets, festivals, games, and the like. They would supervise the education of their children. They would be the de facto head of all things that went home in the head, uh, in the, went on in the home, especially if their husbands were traveling merchants, soldiers, or ambassadors. And um, then he goes on to talk about uh, the fact that women in those days, um, there is evidence that they played a wide range of roles from shopkeeper to artisan to domestic to physician to commercial entrepreneur to brick maker, even to owning shipyards or brick factories. It seems clear that women of uh, many women of whatever status had more disposable income in Rome than in eastern parts of the empire. Some were slaves and some freed persons. They had ways of prospering and accumulating wealth during the empire. One could have relatively high social status economically, even if one was not part of or connected to a Roman uh, patrician family. In other words, there were different forms of social status, and we find women playing a wide variety of roles, religious and otherwise. And so the image that uh, we get perhaps from Islam, that in the first century church, women were sort of covered up and out of the way, is an inappropriate image, because first of all, they had much more freedom in the culture and society than we see in Islam today, particularly radical Islam, and more as you moved west in the empire toward Italy in the Roman area, women held significant roles of responsibility in business and in professions and in the church, such that a third of the women that are mentioned here in this passage, um, have, or a third of the people mentioned are women that Paul singles out as being significant in Rome. One of them is Phoebe. And it's interesting that Phoebe, you find her in the first verse, Phoebe is with Paul in Corinth, and she is going to be the one who carries this letter to Rome. And Paul describes her like this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant at the church which is in Cancrea. Now, there is translator prejudice in the English here, because the Greek says, literally, she is holding the office of deacon in Cancrea. And that word deacon is translated that way every other place it occurs in this context except here. Our translators changed it because Phoebe's obviously a woman. But what Paul is plainly saying is that Phoebe was the deacon of the Cancrean assembly. It even suggests, because of the way it singles out, that she was either the deacon of significant reputation or the only deacon, because it, it singles her out in a grammatical form that holds her position relatively high. When you put that together with the other bits of information that we have gleaned from her background and from the way Paul writes, she was a woman of influence. She was a woman because she was a patron. She was a woman who probably had a fair amount of wealth it would only be natural that as she came to Christ and surrendered her life to God, that she would be using her wealth to help the poor, because that was 
paramount of importance in the New Testament church. And the natural connection of the service and ministry of a deacon in caring for the poor is already well established. And so Phoebe would have naturally risen to this role as a spirit-filled woman. She would have taken the responsibility and ultimately been recognized in Kenkrea as a deacon who was ministering to the poor and the needy among her community. Paul selects her to carry this letter to Rome. She's there with them in Corinth. He didn't send Tertius. He didn't send Timothy. He didn't send some of the other men that were there with him. But he sent Phoebe. And my assumption is that he sent her because she was most capable of not only delivering the letter, but accomplishing the other things that were necessary. She had that social network and that knowledge, as well as the financial backing to go to Rome and establish a base for Paul to launch. And so she became the emissary from the apostolic group that carried the letter of Romans to the church in Rome. Another one that stands out is Andronicus and Junius. Now, another thing that uh, our Bibles, uh, our translators have not helped us with here is they have masculinized Junia's name. In verse um, 7, greet Andronicus and Junius, the S should not be there. Junia or Hunia is actually the Greek or Latin form of Joanna, which is the, the Hebrew name, Joanna. And Hunias or Hunia was a recognized woman's name at the time of the writing of the book of Romans. Why do I say that? Well, J-U-N-I-A as we would spell it, is found more than 250 times in contemporary literature of the day as referring to a woman. It's a woman's name, Junia. But Junius is never found in ancient literature. A man's name. It's never found. It does not occur in any Greek or Roman literature. The first time this name was changed to a man was by an exegete, a Roman Catholic exegete, by the name of Giles in 1245. When he was translating the scripture, he decided that a woman could not be an apostle. So he changed her name to Junius. And that name change has been picked up in all the translations ever since. In fact, Cranfield, who is a Greek scholar, when he comments on this passage, he says that the fourth Greek word in the verse should be accentuated as the accusative of the common Roman female name Junia is hardly to be doubted. The persistence of the accentuation, which makes it an hypothetical masculine name, seems to rest on nothing more solid than prejudice. 
Compare Leitzman's confident assertion that the possibility of the name being a woman is ruled out by the context. In other words, the Bible said Junia, but we changed it because we didn't like the concept that an apostle could be a woman, and so we changed the name to a man's name 1,200 years after the letter was written. The early church fathers, John Chrysostom and Origen, both looked at this passage and considered Junia to be a female apostle, and not only considered her as such, but in their commentaries within a hundred years of this book being written, who were native Greek speakers, they said it is, it is Andronicus and Junia who stand out as exemplary among the apostles as being leading and key apostles. And one of the things that Chrysostom had to say about the women of the era, if I can find that little quote, it's kind of pithy and to the point. Chrysostom writes this, The the women of those days were more spirited than lions sharing with the apostles their labors for the gospel. In this way, they went traveling with them and performed other ministries. It is apparent that Prisca and Aquila, both teachers, and Andronicus and Junia were probably husband-wife teams. And that Andronicus and Junia, who were in Christ before Paul was converted, as a husband-wife team, went out planting churches around the Palestine region to the extent that they became known among the apostles as outstanding church-planting missionaries. And so, of the whole list, a third of the people that Paul highlights are women, and women of significance who have significant roles. Very, very fascinating passage. Final exhortations. Verse 17. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Here's the other question I ask myself. If I'm about to close one of the most important letters of my career to one of the most strategic churches of the time, what would I say? What would I give as my parting shot? How would I address them? And among the last things Paul says is, watch out for people who cause dissension, who break the unity. I mean, of all the things he could say, think of how many different ways you could encourage someone. Think of how many different ways you could warn someone. All the things you could say. The one Paul chose was, watch out for those who cause dissension. Friends, we cannot underscore too much the importance of unity 
in the body of Jesus Christ. We cannot overemphasize that. There are times when you need to draw a line in the sand and make your position clear. And people who are not willing to join you on your side of the line, you need to break fellowship with. There are those times. Those times are clear when the message of the gospel itself is being weakened. Like the Galatian heretics who wanted to go back to salvation by law-keeping after coming to Christ. And Paul had incredibly strong words for them. And he said, I I want nothing to do with them. They're heretics. There's a time when we have to draw the line in the sand. If someone were to say to me this morning, Brother, I'd like to be a member of this church. In fact, I'd like to be on your leadership team. I have some great ideas for this church. But you know that Bible you preach from? I don't believe that's true. That was just made up by a bunch of men. Um, There's human error in that book. And, uh, you know, people that are enlightened understand that. And so I hope it won't bother you too much. You know, I I love Jesus and I pray every day. And I want to be an active member of your church. But I hope it won't bother you that I don't uh, believe the Bible to be the Word of God. I have no fellowship with that brother. I'm not even sure he's a brother. But I have no fellowship with him. Of course you can't be a member of this church. Of course you can't be on the leadership team. Of course you can't have influence here. In fact, let me show you the back door. Go find somewhere else to, to bring your pollution. It's not wanted here. There is a time to draw the line and say, I, just for the sake of unity, I can't go there. But we are warned over and over again in Scripture that when we're not talking about those crucial matters on which our eternal destiny hangs, that the most important thing in the church to preserve is unity. Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Hold the unity of the Spirit. Jesus prayed for that in His high priestly prayer. Maintain the unity of the body. And the reason for that is, is if we have disharmony and disagreement, it grieves the Spirit of God. And when the Spirit of God is grieved, He lifts His hand from our lives, and the power of God is now missed in the assembly. Ichabod is written on the door. The glory has departed. And we're just a bunch of ordinary people now meeting in our own flesh trying to do the work of God the best we can. And we can't do that because Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. So if we disrupt the unity of the Spirit, we completely bring to a halt the eternal work of God. And we run on in our own strength playing church and not doing it very well because we're grumbling. So Paul says, mark those people who bring disunity. And he says, turn away from them. You know, it's interesting to me. (laughs) 
that a man that sleeps with his stepmother can be forgiven and brought back in the church if he repents. That, that a person who embezzles money can be forgiven and brought back in the church if they repent. That a person who denies Jesus Christ before the executioner's sword, although the church struggled with it, could repent and ultimately be brought back into the flock. But more than once in the New Testament, the Scripture says you find a dissentious person, shut them out, turn them off, have nothing to do with them, and don't ever let them back. They cannot be redeemed in the church. They might go to heaven, but they cannot be fixed in the church. Have nothing to do with them. It's that important. Because you can't, it, Paul, Paul says in another letter, warn them once, warn them a second time, and when you've given that second warning, that's it. Have no more to do with them. Because you can't take a chance that they'll do it a third time. It's that important. It's pretty powerful stuff. Watch the dissenters. He says, on the other hand, your obedience has been has reached everyone, therefore I'm rejoicing over you. How would you like it to be said of the church in McHenry? Oh, that's the Alliance Bible Church in McHenry. I know that church. Their obedience to Jesus Christ is, is well known by all the churches in the Alliance. Even the other sister churches, the assemblies and the, the uh, E-Free and the Baptist Church knows of their obedience to Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you love that to be said of us? Paul says, you people follow Jesus. I'm glad to say that about you. He says, so be wise in what is innocent. and uh, Or wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's the second coming. You know, how tough is it today? How tough are you having it? What are you struggling with? Are you having a hard time? Tie a knot of faith. Hang on if necessary with your fingernails. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's coming back. And he's going to destroy the works of the devil. And we're safe. We're going to be with him forever. Timothy, my worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jasus and Sosipater, my kinsman. Tertius, I'm writing the letter, by the way. He's the actual stenographer. I greet you. Gaius is our host. The whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, he's here with us. He greets you. Cordus, the brother, he's greeting you. Now to God, Him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret from long ages past, but now is manifested, which by the way is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This great mystery of the faith, according to the commandment of the eternal God, testified by the Scriptures and the prophets, it has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith, To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen.
I left here Friday to go to the bank and pick up some lunch. Not at the bank, but two different errands, one trip. And I was uh, I was thinking about this message and I was thinking about this letter and thinking back on Romans. I'm going to miss Romans. Glad I can read it every day. And I was thinking about what people have said about it. Did you know Romans is the only book in the Bible that succinctly and systematically explains the whole message of the gospel? Commentators for years have called it the crowning jewel of all the books of the scripture. You can't really measure the inspired word of God in qualitative relative terms. But in our humanness, if we were going to say, you know, how can, how can we identify that this book of Romans, if it's all you had of the scripture, it would literally tell you everything you need to know for life and godliness to live in the spirit. I mean, it's that significant a book. It is the embodiment of gospel truth in one single letter, both in theology and in practice. Tertius penned that final benediction and doxology. And the parchment was rolled up. And with these last words, the parchment of the most complete of all Paul's letters, and the only systematic explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ recorded in the Bible was rolled and placed in Phoebe's satchel. The next day, this faithful servant of Jesus Christ began her journey to Rome, carrying the only copy of what many consider to be the crowning glory of God's revelation to the human race and all who would come to know Him through Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about Phoebe having this letter in her purse starting on a journey to Rome. What must that have been like? Did she know how precious the book she was carrying was? Did she know that it was all word for word divinely inspired? Did she sense that she held within her hands the full embodiment of the written testament of the gospel that would bless the church for thousands of years? Did she face satanic opposition, hindrances in her travel? What obstacles did she have to overcome as she traveled to Rome with this letter and her purse, her satchel? Amazing, amazing story. I wish someone had watched and written Phoebe's journey to Rome. But we know it got there. And soon after its arrival, it began to be copied and copied again and shared around. And today, we all have it in our hands. 
because Phoebe's mission was successful and the letter was delivered and it has blessed the church for 2,000 years. Father, thank you for the indescribable gift of your son. And thank you for Paul who wrote it all down so well that we should have a full understanding of a full salvation. Lord, may we cherish the message of Romans. Build it in our heart. Memorize it. Write it on the, the, the pages of our soul until it permeates our lives. And thank you, Father, for those who sat with Paul while he composed it, perhaps helped him with thoughts here and there. As they talked about it, I'm sure he must have talked about it. For Tertius, who wrote it down so faithfully. For Phoebe. Capable, gifted, and talented woman that carried this letter to Rome. And all the scribes that have ensured that we have had its words ever since. Thank you, O God, for giving us the book of Romans. In Jesus' name, amen.